this past week, this past month, God is right there. It's just sometimes we, we get these truths lost and we're wondering, is God really for me? And we'll say, yes, okay, because we're supposed to be the good Christian. Yes, God is with me sometimes, right? Now, God is not just watching the cookies, if you're wondering. God's eye is on us. And as we go through this, Jesus uses a very endearing term, and he calls us his sheep. We looked at that last week. We're going to continue on with that theme this week. But I I want us to see the even broader context. I can't back up anymore here. Broader context, going back to chapter 9, when Jesus healed the blind man. And you remember, after he healed him, or rather, right before he healed him, they were his, his disciples were asking, why is he blind? Was he, did he sin? Did his parents sin? No. This was so that God would be glorified. And as soon as Jesus does the stuff with the mud, he, go, he tells them to go to the pool of Siloam, which when translated means, what church do you remember? Sent. And what John's trying to tell us is he's about to be healed and display God's glory. And from that moment on, he will be sent. Church, God allowed you to have weaknesses. I'm not talking sins. I'm talking about weaknesses. God allowed you to have disabilities so that God can work through them. Sometimes he heals them. Sometimes he removes them. Praise God when that happens. What type of weaknesses and disabilities do you have? God, if he's not going to heal them, he's going to shine his glory through them. So he he basically, John is telling us, this man is sent. But it wasn't all that easy because as soon as he is sent to testify, who does he testify before? It's the Pharisees. And as he's testifying to the Pharisees, he ends up getting kicked out of the synagogue. Well, thanks a lot for nothing, God, right? I tried to do the right thing. But God changes his heart. Jesus goes looking for him because he knows he's been kicked out of the synagogue. And the man confesses that he now believes that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And he believes and he worships him. And then with that as the backdrop of a man being sent to display God's glory, but his first opportunity to do that in being sent is he's kicked out of the synagogue. Let's understand, when you were kicked out of the synagogue, the, the high, there were different levels. The last level was you were, you were basically disconnected from your covenant with God. You basically lost your salvation. You would be kicked out and you were lost. And so this, this was something to be feared. Not just that others might judge you, but in your relationship with God. And so that becomes very significant as we move into chapter 10. And Jesus now starts calling us his sheep. And he says, I'm going to take you in and out. And if you follow me, what does he say he's going to do? He's going to help them find pasture. And we realize that this finding pasture was equivalent to this abundant life. The challenge Jesus gave them is, hey, sheep, follow me. Don't follow the stranger. Don't follow the, don't, don't listen to the thief and the robber. Follow me. And I'm going to take you in and out of the sheep pen and I'm going to lead you into pasture. I'm going to lead you into this abundant life. And we realize that God has given us, that smile's going to kill me. Oh goodness. That 
from the baby. Not, well, I like your smile too, Diego, but it's, you understand. Oh, man, I stepped into that one backwards. And, the, and he's eyeing me too. It's like, and the truth, though, is that God, God has promised us and given to his sheep everlasting life. We're going to see that again today. But God wants us not just to experience the life, but he came to give us abundant life. I'm not talking about like lots and lots of money. Some of the most amazing children of God who will receive the most rewards in heaven had little to nothing here on earth. And God's desire is to lead us into that pasture, into that abundant life. So we're going to talk about that some today. We're going to get at this, uh, this idea of sheep and what it means to follow him. And if we're going to follow him, sometimes in that pasture, there's a lot of struggle and heartache. We're going to kind of unwrap that a little bit. And so here we are now. I'm going to start reading from verse 21, excuse me, verse 19 of chapter 10. And we're going to continue on with this idea of discovering this abundant life. And how does Jesus now address it? John 10, 19. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demonized and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said... These are not the sayings of a man demonized. How can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Referring back to the blind man who had just been healed. Fast forward about two months, verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. He's walking... And the Jews gather around him. If you're ever on a walk and people surround you, not a good thing. Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Man, we're going to need to unravel that a little bit. Now, here we go, church. This is about you. This is about the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Literally, that is, and they shall certainly not perish Unto the ages. So never perish. Not ever. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And boy did that phrase get him in trouble. I and the father are one. They wanted to stone him. I'm not going to read that section. It's not my purpose to focus on today. But then in verse 40, it picks it up. Then Jesus went back across, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They physically came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, 
many believed in Jesus. That is, they spiritually came to him. Jesus used that phrase, unless the Father draws you, you cannot come to me. Only those the Father draws comes to me. Only the Father, only those the Father gives to me will come to me. And that means, come to me, means, I haven't made my point yet. Even though it says the Father's will is that, it, it says that the Father's will is that who, who everyone he gives us will come to Jesus. So initially, they physically came to him, and in verse 42, now many actually come to him spiritually and believe in him. And as I said last week, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. Those are the, those in opposition, and it's as if you, you, you want to say, Jesus, don't say anymore. If you say anymore, they're going to crucify you. They're going to kill you. Just don't say anymore. But Jesus purposefully drives this wedge Right there in verses 19 and 20, we dis- 21, they, we discover by Jesus doing this, it forced them, it polarized them. Some chose not to believe him, but others are saying, can, the, can demons heal a blind man? They're coming closer and closer, and we actually discover after Lazarus is raised from the dead that many of the Jews now start believing. That's why he's pushing so hard. Church, if you're ever in a situation in which you just want to shut your mouth, do the opposite, open your mouth, and speak on his behalf. Because those who are opposed to the gospel you're proclaiming, maybe in a testimony or a praise report or how God answered a prayer, whatever it might be, by you pressing the gospel, you are forcing people to make a decision. And that's what Jesus did here. And he's being bold. And he's pushing that wedge and separating the Jews more and more between those who say, no, I won't believe, and those who will eventually say yes. And they will not just physically come to Jesus, they will spiritually come to him and believe in him. And so we, we, we pick up this story now. It's about two months after the Feast of Dedication, excuse me, the Feast of Tabernacles, and now it's Hanukkah. Around Christmas time, that generally lands between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but here it was about the beginning of December. Four months later is the Passover. That's when Jesus dies on that Passover day. So this is four months. But John kind of segues, even though he says it's a different time frame, we realize this is the same context. This is this, Jesus is still talking about the sheep. And him being the shepherd, though he doesn't use that term shepherd, he talks about the sheep. As a matter of fact, he goes so far as to say, you know what, the reason why you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. So Jesus is not technically saying the reason why you don't, because sheep are those that believe in Jesus. Jesus technically isn't saying you don't believe in me because you don't believe in me. You're not my sheep. Do you follow? Because he'd be, he'd be, he wants to take this term, the sheep, and just dig into it a little bit more. See, the sheep are those that listen to him and follow him. Now, this is the present tense in the Greek. And it's the present tense is continuous action. That means they listen to and continue to listen to him. They follow him and they continue to follow him. Where does the shepherd lead them, church? In finding pasture, into this abundant life. So Jesus is about to talk about this a little bit. What this abundant life is going to consist of. And so what we discover here 
is that Jesus, in essence, is repeating just a little bit of what he said a few chapters earlier. Do you remember? They start grumbling. He's, he's telling them that he's the bread of life. And they start grumbling. And he recognizes something is wrong with their heart. And he says this, Only those that the Father draws can come to me, and I will raise them up at the last day. And then he goes on and he says this, This is what it says in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. The reason why he's quoting that is because he is giving authoritative proof, authority. He's he's giving authority to what he just said. You don't believe me that you, you can't even believe in me unless the Father draws you? Here's an Old Testament quote. Everyone... I just lost my train of thought here. I'm going to have to look, that, look this up in, in John chapter 6. He says, everyone, I'm, I'm there. Okay, they will all be taught by God. That's simple. They will all be taught by God. And what does he say next? Listen to this. He says, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. What does he mean by drawing? He means the Father teaches, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching what the Father showed him. And those that the Father's drawing will eventually listen to and they will learn. Continuous action. They listen, continue to listen. They learn, continue to learn. There's this interplay then between God teaching and us responding by listening to and learning and eventually coming to that place in which we make this decisive decision, I will follow Jesus and they will come to him. They will believe in Jesus Christ. Before you believed in Jesus, the Spirit of God was impressing truth upon your heart. For some of you, the wrestling match was strong and intense. For me, I can still remember the battle just pushing God and what my brother was trying to say, what, what, my, what God was trying to say through my brother. I just kept pushing away. And then finally, the Spirit of God won. And I started listening to what the scriptures had to say about it, what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus, to believe in Jesus Christ. And my spirit gave way and I began to listen and I began to learn and it was back and forth as God through this simple tract and through what my brother was saying, I came to that place in which I came to Jesus. That's how the Father draws us. And and so Jesus in essence is repeating the same idea. The reason why you don't believe is because you refuse to listen and follow. You do not listen and you do not learn. What, is, what was Jesus' remedy for this? Do you remember? It starts off in the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 44. He says this, stop grumbling. Because it was an arrogant heart. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, listen, but they're not. Learn, but they're not. Stop grumbling. And, to, and that was to the group called the Jews. And to these Jews, again, he's in Jerusalem and he says this. The reason why you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. You refuse to listen. You refuse to follow. Look at the miracles. Jesus just opened the eyes of a blind man. And they refused to listen. They refused to learn. They were not going to follow. Yep. Because the, the Father's not drawing them. They refused. 
Maybe you know of some of your friends. As you shared Christ with them, it's just like they want to argue with you. The Spirit of God is pricking their hearts. He's trying to draw them, and we'll see if God does or not. And if he does, then that means they're going to listen and learn. They're going to, the, their heart is going to begin to soften. For Lydia, God says, uh, Luke tells us, God opened Lydia's heart, and she believed the message. God works on the heart and he begins to pry it open through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is truth. You're a lost sinner. You need grace. You need God to step in and rescue you from yourself. But these Jews, they're resistant to that. And then Jesus goes on and he begins to talk about how much he loves his sheep. Now I want you to look at the context there. It's, it's in red. That's what Jesus says. Where do you see that word love anywhere? I want you to look in your Bibles. Do you see the word love anywhere? I'm telling you right now, these next several verses are all about Jesus's love for the sheep. Where is it? It's right in that little phrase. See, the sheep listen to me and I know them. It's not just, Jesus isn't just saying, I know about them. No, 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 no. I know them. They're mine. There's this relationship. On the, the opposite is when Jesus says to those who say, hey, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and heal the sick? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And Jesus looks at him and says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus loves, he knows us. There's this sense of intimacy in this word. I know them. So how does he express this? I want to unwrap this. Give me just a few minutes. I need us to understand this before we then, I'm going to have us go to Romans 8 when we're, when we're done this. But I want us to see something here that Jesus wants to say. See, I grew up in a tradition, a theological tradition that strongly believed in the concept, this teaching of once saved, always saved. I grew up with that. One of the, two of the main verses are right here in verse 27 and now in verse 28. And in verse 28, he lays out two things and those from the once saved, always saved would understand it in a certain way. Jesus says, I give them, that is the sheep, eternal life. And they shall never perish. Never perish. When we look at this, they would say, see, you believe as a sheep, you believe. And from that moment on, the promise is you will never perish. There are no conditions in this. You believe you're my sheep, you will never perish. But see, there, there is a condition here, and that is what even defines a sheep. It's not that you believed in the past. It's that you listen to him, and you continue to listen to his voice. See, if you're a sheep, you love the shepherd because he's a good shepherd, and you're going to listen to him. You're not going to follow these guys online that are preaching all this garbage that's out there. And there's so much, and they're so good at twisting words that, that contradict Scripture. But we hear the good shepherd's voice. We listen to it, 
and we follow him and continue to follow him. If you're his sheep, because you're listening and continuing to listen, you're following and continuing to follow, you will never perish. You are secure in him. You are eternally secure as his sheep, continuing to follow. The question then becomes, as as what I grew up with, once saved, always saved, they would look at this right here, and this is just a little what they call a diagram or a schemata of this very simple verse in the very beginning of 28a. See, Jesus is talking to those who are not his sheep. The reason why you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. And then he says, see, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. See, the only way for Jesus' sheep to perish is if they were to somehow become not his sheep, because those who are not his sheep, see, they'll perish. They're going to die in their sins. Okay? So, the idea is, is it possible then, the question is, is it possible for Jesus' sheep to become not Jesus' sheep? And those from what I grew up with said, see, it's impossible. That's why I have an X here, impossible, because the word never perish is used. So here is the question. I'm going to call this, and this is only going to take a minute. I'm going to call this group A and this group B. Here is my question. Does the Bible, outside of this verse, does it ever talk about the possibility of Someone or people moving from group A to group B, even though the word never is applied to them. Let me just say that, ask that again. Is it possible for people in group A to transition to group B, even though the word never is applied to them? Let's, let's do that. Let's test this. Because if we find it, then we're going to need to conclude it is possible for people, even though the word never is used, for people who are Jesus' sheep to transition to not my sheep and perish. Do you follow what I'm saying here? So turn with me. Stay here. We're going to come back, but turn with me to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus has just shared the parable of the four soils. And his disciples come to him with a very important question. Let's look at that. Matthew 13, starting with verse 10. The disciples... Now, who are Jesus' disciples? Last chapter, verse 49, do you see that? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This group called the disciples is more than the 12. These are just people who follow Jesus, men and women. He calls them mothers, brothers, sisters. See, these are the true family. They're my disciples. So his disciples, not just the 12, come to him and ask, why do you speak to the people in parables? Here are the two groups. Group A, in this case, are the people. Group B, group A is the people. Group B is Jesus' disciples. And he tells about, he, he, he begins to say something about group A. So follow me, if you will. Those are the two people groups. The people are not his disciples, and he's speaking parables to them. So his disciples ask him that question. He replies, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Who is you? The disciples. 
The secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, but not to them. Hmm. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Who is them? The people. Group A. Okay, you're with me, right? You can follow that. He speaks to them in parables. Though seeing, they, who's they? The people, group A, do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them, referring to group A, the people, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You, group A, the people. The people will, will be ever hearing, but listen, never understanding. Whoa. You, the people, will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Is Jesus trying to tell us that the people that he's speaking in parables to will never perceive, never understand? Without perceiving and understanding, they will never believe, church. They will never become his disciples. Is this what Jesus is trying to say? If you're not my disciples and you're the people, you're condemned to be the people and you will never believe in me and you will end up in hell. Is this truly what Jesus is saying? No. He is saying as long as you're in this group called the people, there's something wrong in your hearts. Until the Father draws you, you cannot transition from being a, a, a part of this group A, the people, to become a disciple. And as long as you're in this group, you will never perceive, you will never understand. But you see, Jesus obviously believes that you can transition from the people who didn't believe to the disciples who do. That was you. That was me. I was an unbeliever. I was a part of that group. Praise God, though I was, as long as I was, a she, as long as I was a, in that group, I, I didn't understand, but praise God, when I transitioned, when, when the Father drew me, I got it. I understood. So I'm, I'm just simply saying, this, this word never does not mean, well, let me remove this now, does not mean you cannot transition from one group to another. He's simply saying, as long as you're my sheep and following me, you will never perish. Church, I'm going I'm to piggyback on that in just a moment. But I'm going to go to the next part. I just want to unwrap this so that we can understand it a little better, okay? Because with my upbringing, I misunderstood it. In this group called the, the, the belief of once saved, always saved, they would also say, see, I was hoping to be able to flip this, and I realized I can't do that. Ah! So I'm going to turn it around so you can see it. I just thought, you know what, that's going to be pretty cool. I can just flip it. And then I realized, no, I can't. So here we go. This is the last, last half. And he says, no one can snatch them, referring to the sheep, out of my hand. Now, here's what I learned. From my upbringing, once saved, always saved. This is how they translated it. No one, including the sheep, can snatch the sheep from my hand. Is that what Jesus is trying to say? I mean, after all, aren't you a sheep? And aren't you anyone? Aren't you a... I, don't, I can't say aren't you a no one. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But can... Is that what Jesus is trying to say, that the sheep should be included in this? So here we go. I'm going to take you back to grammar school, grade school. 
This right here is called the subject. This right here is called the verb of the predicate. Whoo, man. I can, some, some smoke starting to rise. I can, wheels are turning. Here we go. And this them, the sheep, are, is the object of the predicate. You writing this down? <laughs> object of the predicate. So here's what I'm asking. Do we ever find in Scripture this word no one, and in verse 28, it's the Greek word tis. Do we ever find this subject including the object of the predicate so that we should understand it? No one, including the sheep, can snatch the sheep from my hand. This is how I learned it. So here's what I did. I looked up this word tis. I looked every time John uses it in this grammatical layout. It does it more than 20 times, just so you know. You can check it if you want. More than 20 times. Guess what? Not one time, not one time does John want us to understand that the object of the predicate is to be included in the subject. Not one time. I just thought, whoa. How, how did I miss that? And, and in my upgrooming, I mean, that's what I was told. But 15 times. No, it doesn't. Excuse me one second. I need to find my place here. <laughs> John 1.18, no one has seen God. Well, has God seen God? No one has seen God. Has God seen God? Well, of course. So it can't mean no one, including God, has seen God. doesn't make any sense. Of course, the object of the predicate is not included in the subject. I'm going through this, and I'm going back to grade school where we sat in English class and learned this real, excuse me, boring stuff. I'm sorry if I offended any English teachers. Just my oldest daughter's not here, so she's an English teacher. But it was boring to me, but it helps. So here we go. Here's another one. John 7, 13, no one spoke openly of him. Him is Jesus. Did Jesus speak openly of himself? Well, of course he did. So he's not supposed to be included in the subject. No one spoke openly of Jesus. Jesus did. Chapter 7, verse 27. No one knows where he, referring to Jesus, is from. He is the object of the predicate. Does Jesus know where he's from? Well, of course he does. He's not to be included in the subject. No one, excluding Jesus, of course, knows where Jesus is from. Okay, do you follow what I'm saying? Now, he, then I did this. this. This is repeated in verse 21. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. A different Greek word. Just if you're wondering, it's a Greek word, udes. It means no one. So I looked this word up. John uses it in this grammatical structure 15 times or more. Not one time does he ever want the reader to understand the object of the predicate to be included in no one. What John, what the upshot of this is, guys, John is not saying, or Jesus, I should say, is not saying no one, including the sheep, can snatch the sheep from my hand. He's saying no one outside of you can ever snatch you from my hand. Cole, no one outside of yourself, no one can snatch you from God's, from Jesus' hand, from the Father's hand. Laura, no one Nothing 
outside of yourself can ever snatch you from all that God has for you in this pasture, in this abundant life. It's yours if you continue to follow me. See, those are the two conditions. It's not a clear spoken condition, but it's right there. Listen, continue to listen, follow, continue to follow. So here's what I want us to do. I want now to take you to a theme verse that was my passion growing up. It was my life verse, Romans 8, 28. And I want you to just go there with me, if you would. And in Romans 8, 28, there is this same idea, this same refrain in which, or, or, or theme that Paul is wanting to share here with us, share to, with the Romans. And he begins by saying in Romans 8, yeah, Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who is this verse for? Who is God going to work all things together? Is it for the world? See, it's not. This is very conditional for those who love God. If you love God, he is going to go out of his way, so to speak, to make sure that all things... All things, when I understood the word all, that means like every single one. Every single thing that happens in your life, God is going to take it and craft it and work it around for the greater good. Your greater good. His greater glory. This is how God will maximize his glory. Let me word it that way. But what happens is, now watch this, from verse 29, chapter 8, verse 29, all the way to chapter 9, 29, it says nothing about us loving God or about faith. You know what it's about? God's purpose. You don't believe me? Those whom God foreknows, what does he do? He predestines. Those whom he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, what does he do? He justifies. And those he justifies, he glorified. Wait a second, where's faith? See, it's supposed to come right before justified, but it's not there. Had Paul forgotten the gospel? Well, of course not. His focus is simply God's purpose. Here's what God's going to do from the time he foreknew you all the way to you being glorified. That is reflecting Jesus and bringing him glory. God's, God's taking you through all of this. Faith isn't the issue. That's, that is a condition stated from the very beginning. Do you love God? Let me tell you what's in store for you. That is love and continue to love. Let me tell you what's in store for you. He says nothing. And when I check that word nothing, it means no thing. Not one single thing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me just share with you that list. It says trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, those things can't separate you. Even death itself can't separate you. Nothing can. Death, nor life, angels, nor demons. I'm trying to read this word here. <laughs> Present. There we go. Future. Any powers, height, or depth. Anything. Or that is nothing, right there in verse 39. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, nothing is this Greek word, tis again, and it's exactly this same 
structure here. Nothing outside of you can separate you from God's love because he's assuming you're a lover of God. I want to ask you, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God? Is God's eyes just on the cookies in your life? Is God's eyes just on the main dishes? Is it also on you, the apple? And by the way, I'm just a little wordplay here. Apple of God's eye. Sorry, that was just really corny, I think. But the truth is that God's eye is on us. He loves us. Nothing can separate that love. So here's what I'm going to ask you. When you face trials of many kinds, now, I, I don't want you to give the, just a good Christian response here. I want you to just, in your mind, say this. Don't say it out loud. But how do you respond in those trials? Do you really believe this? Because if you did, every single trial, six weeks to get a refrigerator, the church's finances. Personally, I could not write myself a full check this past, last week. But I, we're believing God is so in control. We just, we, we got down and we just, we prayed, but we've looked over our finance, we're making cuts, we're doing things, and we're, God is totally in control. He's got this. Last month was the best month in my business that I've had be since before COVID. God's in control. So when we faced this and I realized financially we're just falling short, what would you have done? I'll be honest with you, and I've told you plenty of stories. I start fretting. I start thinking all of these what ifs. And I told you the story about how Mike Jeffords, a guy I was discipling, had to challenge me and say, but Mike, hasn't God always, meaning not one time he has not, always come through in the business? Like always, always. And I said, you know what, Mike? You are absolutely right. And God just had to correct my tude. As I was going in, into the dealership, God provided in an amazing way. Thank you, Lord. And he's just done that time and time again. But when you're going through your trial that you faced this past week, how did you respond? Did you get angry with him? Did you truly, firmly believe? I'm, I'm feeling the emotion, but I'm not going to give into it. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane Church, Jesus felt the emotion it's not like we're supposed to become stoics and not feel emotion. We feel emotion, but we refuse to be led by our emotion. It will not capture my heart. It will not dictate what I do and what I say today. I'm going to speak truth. The truth is, life is really hard right now because of these finances. But guess what? I believe in a God who, and by the way, um, God... Um, Shan had uh, her, her vehicle battery die on her, and the next day, she, she did her homework. She walked, and I said, you can do this, and then, okay, she did that, but it, the battery was going to come the next day, and it was like she needed her car today. So she said, Pastor Mike, I'm just going to believe God is going to come through. I'm going to stand on that. And she had ridiculous faith in a good way. And guess what? So she went back to the mechanic, and the mechanic says, well, you know what? I just found out I, I can actually get a 
uh, an alternator. It was, an, it was the alternator. was the problem. I can get you an alternator and get it done, like, in the next two hours. I can do that. I was like, whoa, there you go. And wasn't it cheaper? Wasn't he able to get the alternator cheaper? Okay. Now, I don't know what your, your night was like, but I don't think that Shan wrestled and tossed through the night wondering, oh, my goodness, is God going to provide? When I try to start the car, is it not going to work? Well, she tried to start the car, and it didn't. She got to jump the night before, and it didn't. Now, what, what do I do? God came and, and rescued her. God rescued her. What is your attitude when you face these things? Now, let me just tell you, sometimes God allows these difficulties to discipline us. We're heading down the wrong direction into sin, and God says no. And things start happening. It's like, well, what are you doing, God? And t- if this is the case, let me tell you this. He will always show you because that's just his heart. He's the good shepherd. He's gonna, if you're heading down the wrong path and bad things are happening, he's going to show you. He's going to let you know, see, this is my discipline. And he disciplines those he loves, that he knows as his sheep, okay? That's his promise. It may be for other reasons. I'm just going to wrap it up with this. A friend of mine was sitting down. I was discipling him. And I think I shared this with you a a month or two ago, so I'm going to be brief. But he told me that he had not been paying his employee or he didn't cut them a check recently. And he just didn't have the money, but he had paid himself. And I said to him, James 5 says you can't do that. If you have a business, you pay your employees first, and then you pay yourself. But Mike, I mean, if I can't support myself and the business goes belly up, she's never going to be able to work for me anymore. And I said, it doesn't matter. You're going to need to trust God, I guess. But the Bible says if the mowers have mowed your fields and you don't pay them, their cry will rise up to God and he will come and discipline you. This person was under tremendous financial duress. And I challenged him. I said, you need to pay your employee like today. He immediately got on the phone with his employer, employee. said, you know what? I'm just going to pay you. I've got the money in the bank, and I'm, I'm just going to pay you. He told him, within 30 minutes, he got a call. Before his retail store opened, he got a call and sold a unit that more than paid what he needed, more than paid. And he stood back and he, j- he just said, Mike, God had been disciplining me. I'd broken a biblical principle and he was disciplining me. And as, man, as soon as I ob- heard his voice and I obeyed him, look what God, Mike, look what God did. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, that's because that's what God does. So, church, I I just want to tell you, God so loved you. You're a sheep. Keep following him. He has an abundant life for you to pasture in. And he is going to make that that pasture so abundant. He is, even through all of the struggles of life, if all of them, every single one, works out for the greater good, your greater good, his greater glory, what should your attitude be? I'm not saying emotionally you're not going to struggle, but what you're saying and what you're going to do is going to be filled with faith, right? Am I, is this not right? So church, that trial that you went through this past week, how are you handling it? After dinner, we're going to close in prayer. Can we just pray that God would check your heart? If you've been responding, complaining, arguing, maybe you're, even you're angry with God, 
Maybe you realize, oh, I can't be angry with God, but you're mopey. Okay, whatever word you want to choose. God wants to dismantle that. Do you realize that nothing can separate you from his love? Nothing outside of yourself can ever snatch you from the Father's hand or Jesus' hand. You're secure in his hand because you're a believer and you're continuing to believe he's going to hold you. You're a lover of God. All things are going to work together for your good. That's his promise because you're his sheep. You love him. Church, can you stand with me? In the chapter before, the blind man was threatened to being kicked out of the synagogue. He had a lot to worry about. But Jesus' promise was this, no one can snatch you from my hand. You don't need to worry. Within the next few chapters, I count them, there's five examples that John uses to teach this point. Death isn't going to. That's what he promised Lazarus' sisters. Death can't separate you. It's just the beginning. I'm going to give you life abundantly. You're secure in my hand. Father, I just ask you right now, where there's struggle and turmoil in our hearts, settle our hearts, God, before you right now. In Romans 12, you finally give the conclusion to this chapter 8 in view of God's mercies. Now present your bodies as living sacrifices. So that's what we do, God. I am yours, and my life is sacrificed on your altar. I belong to you. You will take such good care of me, even though I face trials of many kinds. So, Father, right now, Wherever we're at in this journey with you, whatever struggle we're going through, even in our marriage, we are purposing, we will follow you, Jesus. Eyes on you. Show me how to walk through this with integrity, truth, and love. And I will rest secure in your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. Everything works together for our good. So Lord, I just pray as we are dismissed, as we think on these truths from your word, let them encourage us as your sheep who listen and follow you continually. You have such good pasture for us to walk in. Can we trust you in this instead of fighting you? Thank you, you're such a good shepherd, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.